Amen. Praise the Lord. He's good to us, isn't he? Welcome to Pole Creek this morning. I hope you felt welcome thus far, and I'm so glad to see each and every one of you here. We've certainly had a tumultuous past couple of weeks, but we always know that the Lord is in charge, and he's going to come through for us. So I hope today that you find encouragement in the sermon and from the Word of God, because I know that the Lord has a message for us today, and I know that he's got great, great plans for both our church and for our church family. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to continue our series, The Last Days, and today we're going to talk about the millennial reign on God's end of days timeline. So yes, we've talked about the beginnings of sorrows, we've talked about the rapture, we've talked about the seven-year tribulational period, we've talked about the battle of Armageddon, and today we'll talk about the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you found your place, you may stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, those who can and are able. We'll begin reading in verse 1 of Revelation 20. The Bible says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God and had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Let's pray. Dear God, we love you so much, and Lord, I am thankful for the book of Revelation. Lord, I know that your word says that it is blessed for those who read this book and who study this book. So God, I pray that you would fulfill your word and you would bless us today as we study your word, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit, God, would feel welcome in this place. Holy Spirit, please come among us. Holy Spirit, convict our hearts. Convict my heart, God. Bring us closer to you and draw us to you. God, purge us of our evil and our wicked ways. And God, we pray that you would build a hedge of protection around this place, that you would bind the demons of hell, Satan, and all their wickedness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We plead the blood upon this place. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So many of you who have have studied literature, have maybe even watched movies, you know that there is an idea of utopia. And what a utopia is, it's basically an ideal society. It's a society that functions uh, efficiently. It's a society where all people are equal. A utopia is a society where everyone has freedom of thought. There are no uh, poor people. There is no impoverished people. There is a just and a righteous government. There is a way of living that is free and beautiful and flourishing. Well, you know that on planet Earth, at least since the fall of Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind into the curse, that a utopia has not really existed on planet Earth. I mean, I would say the closest thing to a utopia that we have ever gotten as human beings is probably what we're sitting in today, the United States. And we know that if, if, if that's a utopia, 
then that's pretty bad, isn't it? Because we deal with a lot of difficult things. We have a lot of crime. We have a lot of death. We have a lot of sickness. We have a lot of inequality. We have a lot of hurting people. We have a lot of um, people who are, who are ignorant to truth. We have a lot of people who are hateful and mean. It, it, so, so, so we understand that there is a desire in this world for utopia. And it's kind of a complex that we as human beings have because in all the movies you watch and all the books that you read, the idea is to make the world a better place. You know, we have this, uh, this hero thing in, in America, and I think humanity in general, no matter what uh, culture or tradition that you're looking at, they're always going to have these fables or these folk tales of heroes, heroes who come and save the day, heroes who come and make the world a better place. And the question that I have is why? Why is that a consistent among all humanity, no matter what continent they've grown up on, no matter what two parents they have, no matter what culture they're a part of, why is that always something that humanity is fascinated with? Well, I'll tell you the reason is because that we're all created in the image of God. And instilled in each one of us is the Garden of Eden. See, mankind was created for a perfect environment in perfect relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, unhindered, unadulterated, the problem is, though, that when sin entered in and it messed everything up, what we were created for is no longer a possibility in the here and now. So us being created in the image of God, we got these innate understanding of beauty and innate understanding of morality and innate understanding of truth, and we long for and we desire a perfect place. We long for and we desire perfect justice and perfect peace. And the reason we all desire that, whether people are Christians or not, even lost people desire that, is because we're created in the image of God and we cannot deny our creator. Well, today I want to talk to you about a true utopia that is going to exist on planet Earth. And that is known as the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a few things that I want to talk about about this millennial reign that I want you to understand. Millennium, of course, meaning a thousand. And the Bible is very clear that this will be a 1,000-year period of time. There are different beliefs within the Christian circles that say that is a figurative 1,000 years, that it just means that it's a long time. Some people think we're already in the millennium. But the Bible, for it to have mentioned the, the 1,000 time and time again, I think six times actually in one chapter, tells me that there is something to this number 1,000, and I'm not willing to just write it off as a figurative uh, form of speech. I believe the Bible is speaking about a literal 1,000-year time period. So in our timeline of the end of times, we understand that at the rapture, the church, those of us who know Christ are gone. That's what ushers in the seven-year tribulation where the Antichrist comes in, where the, the earth uh, suffers from great judgments and plagues. We know that the finality of the seven-year tribulation is what's known as the Battle of Armageddon, which is where the armies of the Lord Jesus led by him will come and wipe the earth clean of the armies of the Antichrist and the armies of the unbelieving Jews. And at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, upon the end of that judgment, is when the Lord Jesus Christ will then set up his throne in Jerusalem, and he will physically reign on this earth as we know it for 1,000 years. This is not the new heaven and the new earth. No, this is a 1,000-year period of his reign where Jesus Christ will bodily sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule this earth for 1,000 years. Okay, so that, that's what we're talking about today. So the three things that I want us to see about this reign, this millennial reign that Jesus will be leading and heading up, is number one, it will be a peaceful reign. 
It will be a peaceful reign. We see in Revelation 20, starting in verse 1, the Bible says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Well, the first thing that I want us to see about this peaceful reign is the one who's in charge. The one who's going to lead, the one who is fully going to reign, the one that is going to be the unequivocal monarch, the ruler of planet earth is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to look too far to find who this ruler is. We can actually go back to the previous chapter, chapter 19, and we can look in verse 15 to find the Lord Jesus Christ about to set up his rule and reign. In verse 15 of chapter 19, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. This is the same Lord Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. He will be a warrior, he will be a great king, and he will be the one who single-handedly rules planet earth from the throne in Jerusalem during the millennial reign. He will be in charge. You know, as we watched all those names that were put up on the screen before the, the message began, one that I love is the Prince of Peace. Hey, listen, you want peace? Jesus Christ can bring peace. It's not the Republicans, it's not the Democrats, it's not the Communists. It's not the Russians. You know who brings peace? The Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, are you longing for a government that's actually righteous? Are you longing for a government that serves true justice? Are you longing for a government that takes care of those in need and those who are weak? Hey, let me tell you what. The Lord Jesus Christ will have that kind of government during the millennial reign. And he will rule with a rod of iron. In other words, he's not going to be the meek and lowly savior that came in his first coming. He is going to be a mighty king, one that is capable of judgment. I mean, in the Battle of Armageddon, it talks about how he treads out the wicked like the winepress of God. And we talked about that in our Bible study group. That's a picture of a winepress in the Jewish tradition where they would have a vat full of grapes. And people would get into that vat and they would stomp these grapes. And there was a drainage system coming out of that vat where the juice would flow out of that vat as the grapes were being stomped. And here we have the judgment of Christ being compared to that. Do you understand what that means? That means that the people who rebel against God, the armies of the Antichrist, will be as grapes. And Jesus Christ will be like that foot who crushes them that day. And his judgment will be pure, his judgment will be true, and his judgment will be final. So here we have this Lord who is reigning, who is peaceful, the prince of peace, but yet he knows how to bring about peace, and he rules with a rod of iron. But you know another reason why this will be a peaceful reign, not just because of who's in charge, but also because of who will not be there. So who won't be there during this time? Well, if you want to turn, you can. You don't have to. But we're going to go back to the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to look in chapter 20, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20. I was actually reading something the other day, and it said that there is no event in the Bible mentioned more than the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. That the Old Testament is slam full of it. A lot of these prophetic books that we just kind of gloss over and cross over, there is so much about the final days mentioned in those books. But in Ezekiel, chapter 20, 
Beginning in verse 37, the Bible says this, I will make you pass under the rod, he's talking to the nation of Israel here, and will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge you of those who rebel and transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they live as foreign residents, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So the first group of people who will not be there are unbelieving Jews. Because in the battle of Armageddon, in that final judgment at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the Bible teaches us that God will purge from the nation of Israel all of the unbelievers. They will be killed. They will be sent to their final place of judgment. So that's the first group who won't be there, those unbelieving Jews. Secondly, we find in Matthew chapter 25, another group of people who will not be there. I was talking to Hannah the other day, and I just can't believe how much prophecy is even in the book of Matthew. But beginning in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31, this is another group of people who won't make it to the millennial reign. The Bible says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. We know that is the beginning of the millennium reign. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then in verse 41, he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. So the second group of people who will not be there are unbelieving Gentiles. Those who are not of the nation of Israel but who survived the, the, the tribulation, they'll come to a place where the Lord will then separate them and he will call them and he will say, all of you who are the sheep, who are, who are believers, you come on this side. All of you who are goats, who, who don't believe in me, who, who don't trust me as your savior, come over here. Those who are the sheep, you get to go into the kingdom. Those who have survived the tribulational period, those who were saved during the tribulation and didn't die during the tribulation, who accepted Christ, you get to go into the millennial reign. All of you who are lost, who survived the tribulation, you are going to be condemned to eternal fire in a place called hell. So we see those two groups. Unbelieving Jews will not get to enter into the millennium. Unbelieving Gentiles will not be able to go into the millennium. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 12 says that even the nations who reject Christ will be annihilated. Now here's the thing about the millennial reign. As Jesus sets up his throne, the initial generation of people who will enter into the millennial reign will all be believers. But what the, the, here's what you have to remember. We're talking about a thousand-year period. So as these folks are having children, and they're having children, and they're having children, successive generations are begin, going to begin to fall away from Christ again. And what you're going to have at the beginning of the millennial reign is you'll have a society of believers, which is going to be just an absolute utopia. It's going to be beautiful. But then as you progress in the millennial reign, you will get more and more people who rebel against the king who's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And you may say, how in the world could somebody rebel against Jesus Christ when I can see him on the news? He's giving speeches as the king of the world. He's sitting on the throne literally in Jerusalem. I could literally get on a plane and fly and go see him, and yet they still reject him. That shows you the hardness of the heart of mankind. 
That shows you the root of sinful nature that resides in all of us. That even talks, you know, Jesus even talked about the Jews and how they wanted signs. They always sought after a sign so they could believe. Well, do a miracle, Jesus, and we'll believe. Show us and prove it to us, Jesus, and we'll believe. And Jesus said, listen, even if I do a sign for you, you're not going to believe. You don't have faith. And the Bible even says those of us who live in the here and now, who have accepted Christ, not by sight but by faith, we are blessed. Because we've not seen Jesus, and yet we believe. But there are many who could see him face to face and still reject him. But I thought that was interesting that the beginning of the millennial reign will be made up of a society of all believers. All of them. Also, the next thing I want you all to see about this millennial reign is, yes, it's a peaceful reign, but it's also a prophetic reign. A prophetic reign. We find that in the book of Zechariah chapter 8. So we're going to get out of Revelation just for a minute. If you guys want to go ahead and turn over to Zechariah, one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. Hannah's actually got a little song that um, she sings to get her through the books of the Bible. Sometimes I have to use that because some of those books are hard to find, aren't they? So Zechariah chapter 8, one of the minor prophets. Zechariah is a very, very apocalyptic, prophetic book. You see a lot of end times prophecies there. And I'm just going to read Zechariah chapter 8, verses 3 through 8. I'll give you all a second to get there. It's like finding a needle in a haystack, huh? Zechariah 8, starting in verse 3, the Bible says this. The Lord says this, I will return to Zion... And live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. The mountain of the Lord of armies will be called the holy mountain. The Lord of armies says this. Old men and women will again sit along the streets of Jerusalem. Each with a staff in hand because of advanced age. The streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in them. The Lord of armies says this. Though it may seem impossible to the remnant of this people in those days... Should it also seem impossible to me? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The Lord of armies says this, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their faithful and righteous God. Those of you who've watched the movie Back to the Future, you know, that's kind of one of those classics that never quite gets old, does it? And it kind of twists your mind a little bit anytime you think about time travel. You know, I've always hoped that that was a reality and that one day maybe I could do some time travel. But there's always a consequences from that, you know. And if you remember the character Biff, he was, the, he was a bully. He always picked on Marty McFly's dad. Um, he never wanted to work for anything. And he tried to get everybody to do stuff for him. Well, in the year 2015, he gets the bright idea that he's going to travel back in time. And he's going to take with him a sports almanac. Y'all remember this in the movie? And he takes that sports almanac back to 1955. And he, he says to himself, I'm going to give this to my younger self, my past self, so that I won't have to be in the condition I'm in now and I can be rich. And he does that. And, and so his younger self takes the almanac and at first he doesn't believe the, the, the facts about who wins this Super Bowl, who wins this World Series, who wins this, Stanley Cup, all the above. But then he starts to realize, wait a minute. These are true. These are actually happening. And he starts placing bets based on this book, and he starts getting rich, filthy rich. You know, and I think that's something that always boggles the minds of us is that we'd love nothing more than to be able to see the future. 
Because then we could say, you know what, I could prevent a lot of the mess that I'm in. If I could just know what's going to happen and what's coming. Well, did you know that as Christians and as Bible believers, we have a glimpse into the future? Now, it's not a personal prophecy necessarily like a fortune cookie would be, right? But it is an overall understanding of what's going to happen in the world. And as Christians, the prophecies of Scripture give us a peace that we can't explain. Because when we're watching the news every day, when we're watching these news cycles, and we're watching this Afghanistan crisis, and we're watching the COVID crisis, and we're watching um, you know, the labor market having trouble finding people to work, and we're looking at these inflation numbers, and we just start... It builds up, and it, and, it, and it really overwhelms us. But as Christians, we have a hope that not other, no one else has. Because even the here and now gets difficult and hard, we know that it's going to get better. And we know who wins in the end. And you know what? Sometimes we've got to go through the junk to get to the good stuff. I mean, anything worth having, you've got you've to get there. You've got to get through some hard stuff in order to get there. And this is what Scripture brings us, is a peace and a hope of what it's going to look like in the end. Now, here in Zechariah, we see that uh, Zechariah is getting this prophecy from God, and God is telling him that there is going to be a time in the future where Jerusalem is going to be a peaceful city. Now, you may look at the news today, and you may say, huh, that's definitely not today. I mean, in Jerusalem, people are used to seeing armed troops march up and down the road. They're used to seeing tanks go up and down their streets. I mean, it's an everyday thing for them. I mean, for us here in Candler, if we saw army tanks going down the road, we'd be going and getting in our, our shelters, and we'd be, uh, you know, doomsday prepping and everything else because we've never seen that kind of stuff in our area before. But they're used to that in Israel because they are constantly under the threat of war. They are surrounded geographically by their enemies on every side. They have uh, air raid sirens. The children are constantly prepped for the possibility of an attack. They've got these terror organizations that are coming against them all the time. But to tell a Jew, someone who grew up in Jerusalem... There's coming a day when it's perfect peace in this city. They're going to say, what? There's no way. This city's never had that kind of peace since King David. This city knows nothing of that. But the Bible is saying, even though you may think it's impossible, did you hear what it said? What is truly impossible with God? And we know that there is nothing impossible with God. Verse 5 of Zechariah 8 says this, The streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in them. The Lord of armies says this, though it may seem impossible to the remnant of this people in those days, should it also seem impossible to me? When we go back to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is one of the most monumental passages in all the Bible. And if you, and if you gloss over it and if you don't read it, if you don't take it into account, you're not going to understand the rest of Scripture well. It's one of those passages in the Bible that everything hinges on, and it's known as the Davidic Covenant. Davidic Covenant. In verse 10 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Bible says this. God is talking to David and he says, I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you, talking to Israel. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, talking to David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Some people may say, well, Ben, that's talking about Solomon. Because we understand that David was on his deathbed, and God was, was, was talking, talking about these things to King David. And David was struggling and not knowing which direction the country would go. And David want, or God wanted to reassure David by a promise that his seed, a man who came from the body of David, will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Now, we know that couldn't have been Solomon because he was a mortal man, and he lived and he died. So who is this Davidic covenant talking about? When we go forward to the book of Luke chapter 1, we're going to see here that there is a person who was the fulfillment of this covenant. Someone who was capable of sitting on the throne of Israel and Jerusalem forever. A throne that will be established and someone who would come from the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, the body of David. Luke chapter 1 in verse 32, the Bible says this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That right there is Gabriel giving the message of Jesus' birth to Joseph. Gabriel is saying, hey, you know that? You know that king that was mentioned in the Old Testament? The one who would come from the body of David and would, his throne would be established forever? That king is the Lord Jesus, the one that your wife is pregnant with. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is that king. When you look here in the lineage, you find Jesus' lineage both in Luke and in Matthew. You're going to find in both of those lineages that David was a great, 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 great grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're also going to find that one of Jesus' names was the son of David, even used in Old Testament prophecies. Because ancient Israel understood that the Messiah would come from the lineage of of King David. Here we have a reign, the millennial reign, a fulfillment of, of prophecy found in the Old Testament. That one day, the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would set up his eternal throne in Jerusalem. He would rule from the throne in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem would finally have peace. And that's what we see here in the millennium reign. That is a prophetic reign, Jesus Christ being King himself. But then lastly, I want us to see this about this reign, about the millennial reign, and it's that it's going to be a righteous reign. So we know it's going to be a peaceful reign. We know it's going to be a prophetic reign that it's been predicted for thousands of years, but we also know that it is going to be a righteous reign, and we can say praise God for that. You know, one thing I am sick of is seeing in the news politicians who break the law and never get punished for it. You know, I get sick and tired of people who have really good lawyers who don't have to face the punishment for their sins and breaking the law. You know, I get sick and tired of seeing our lawmakers make laws that enable people to kill babies in the mother's womb. I get sick and tired of seeing lawmakers and people in our government creating unjust laws that are ruining our children, that are grooming our children for ungodly things. I get sick and tired of companies like Facebook and Netflix and Twitter and Amazon and Google perpetuating this righteousness that they think they have when all it really is is pure racism. I get sick of that mess. But you know what? One day we're going to have a righteous king that won't put up with that junk. And guess what? They can't take him to court. They can't fuss and fight with the Lord Jesus. They can't argue with the king of kings and the Lord of lords because I promise you he'll shut them up. And that's what we need today. And that's what we desire and that's what we yearn for. And guess what? 
Our King Jesus, he is that one. He is going to fulfill that desire in our heart for righteousness. It will be a righteous reign. So the righteous king will rule with the rod of iron. We not only see that in Revelation 19, but we also see that in Revelation chapter 2, if you want to turn back there. And I know we're jumping around here a lot, but I'm telling you, it's all over the Bible. And for us to do it justice, we've got to jump around a little bit. So Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 26, this is, the, uh, I think, the third time that this rod of iron is mentioned It says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. That iron scepter or that rod of iron, iron is a symbol of judgment. Iron is a symbol of wrath and harshness. Iron is a symbol of a judgment that does not judge to appease, does not judge according to people's preferences, but it symbolizes a judgment that is perfect and a judgment that is righteous and a judgment that is set apart from any kind of emotion. And I'm telling you, our society is so full of just emotion. You know, people go off of their whims all the time. People develop an entire worldview based upon how they feel. And we wonder why we have our, our, our young generation of men are frankly a bunch of pansies. Amen? And y'all can say amen right there. It's because we're weak. It's because we're, we're bleeding hearts. We, we, we just want everybody to be happy. Well, listen. Sinners aren't supposed to be happy in their sin. Wickedness is not supposed to experience joy and peace. Jesus still sits on the throne, by the way. He still coordinates and oversees. He's still the sovereign of all of his creation. And a holy God is not going to allow wickedness to prosper. And if you want to allow wickedness to prosper because it makes you feel good, I promise you you're going to pay a dear consequence when society becomes chaotic. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the LGBTQ flag has gotten more complex than ever before. I mean, it is almost like you take a, a, a ball, uh, like five or six paintballs of different colors and you throw them up against the wall. That's the LBGTQ flag. And the reason it's continuing to get more and more complex, they've added five or six colors now for the transgender movement. If you see it now, it looks like the, the, the horizontal bars of the different colors. And now you've got a triangle here pointing into the colors that's another three or four colors because it gets more and more chaotic. You can't... You can't control it. You can't put it in a system because it's going to keep growing. Eventually, you're going to have a line for people who think they're dogs. Eventually, you're going to have a line for people who think they're grasshoppers. Eventually, you're going to have a line for people who think they're goldfish because that's how chaotic it is. And that's what happens when you divert from the truth of the Word of God. Don't think that we can go this way and there not be consequences. Don't think that we can continue this way and our children not be affected. Listen, the Word of God is true and it's powerful and we better get serious about what God's Word says. He didn't just give us this precious book so we can decide to do something different. He gave us this precious book because it is truth. And by the way, there is an objective truth. It's not relative and it's not based on how Ben Heisey feels or how Ben Heisey thinks. I don't care what I wake up feeling like in the morning. I'm still a full-grown man and I ought to act like one. Amen. Y'all can say amen. Amen. Good. Thank you. So, <laughs> so the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, he says in Revelation chapter 2. And it says, and he will rule them with an iron scepter or an iron rod. In other words, there's not going to be any wiggle room for your feelings during the millennial reign. 
It is the truth of the Creator that will prevail, His law and His righteousness. Praise God. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And then we see in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9, it mentions King David. Some even believe and say that King David will be like a vice president to Jesus and will rule with him. I'm not so sure about that, but it is worth further study. It says that the Lord will ser- they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them, is what that verse says. You know something else that will be uh, present in the millennial reign is long life expectancy. Can you believe when people live righteous, they actually live longer? You know? Their, their bodies don't take a beating. I mean, the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. That not only does your spirit die because of sin, but your soul or your body takes a beating. I mean, you've seen people who live rough, you know? You can tell they've had it rough, amen? It's because sin ain't free. And because sin will cost you not only your soul, but it'll cost you your body and your health. It's a difficult way to live. But in the millennium, they're going to live longer. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20 says this, In her, talking about Jerusalem, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days. Or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man. And the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. And increased life expectancy. And I don't think it's because they figured out global warming in the millennial reign. I think it's because they're living righteous. Amen. So who all will be there? Of course, we know the Lord Jesus will be there. But who else? Well, like I said before, only the saved will be there to begin with. But did you know there will also be a resurrection that will take place shortly before the millennium? Now, we, as we talked about the rapture, we know that the rapture is the resurrection of those of us who know Christ now. Both the dead in Christ and also those who are alive. But the tribulation saints, those who believe in Christ during the seven-year tribulation, and all of the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And they will be ushered in along with us as armies who are coming with Christ to rule and to reign during the thousand-year millennial reign. Now, we won't be human beings like those who are still alive. We will have received our glorified bodies by then. But we are going to help God rule and reign during that thousand-year reign. We see that in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 4, if you want to look back there very quickly. Revelation 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. You go down to verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That first resurrection encompasses three different resurrections. The rapture of the saints, which I'm going to be a part of and I hope you are too. Another one that's going to be the the resurrection of the tribulational saints at the end of the seven-year tribulation and also the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. That is the first resurrection. And here when he talks about that, he says, blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection because the second death has no reign over them. So here's my question. Will you be there during the millennial reign? We know we're not going to live through that because if you're saved, you're going to be raptured out. But are you going to be there? Are you going to be one of the ones reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Has there been a time and a place in your life where you've accepted him? You may say, Ben, you say this every week. Well, listen, the most important decision you'll ever make is what you did with Jesus. I preached a funeral yesterday, and that's what I told them. I said, all that's going to matter one day when you stand before God is what did you do with Jesus? Did you reject him or did you accept him? Did you say yes to him or did you say no? You know, God's not going to make any of us trust Christ. He respects our free will. But he will come to you and he will urge you and he will convict you. But it's up to you to say yes or no. You need to make sure of that today. And all, the, all the, you as well that have family, friends, co-workers and neighbors, there's a lost and a dying world around us. They're going about their life as though nothing's wrong. They're going about their life as though they're going to live forever. You know what? They need to hear about Jesus. And I'm telling you, Pole Creek has got to be a machine when it comes to evangelism. We've got to reach our community in a way never seen before because I believe the time is coming near when the Lord Jesus is going to come back. You may say, Ben, I've heard that my whole life. Well, you're just fulfilling prophecy because the Bible says there will be scoffers in the end times. Listen, Jesus is coming. Are you ready? And are the ones you love ready? Let's bow our heads as we go into a time of worship and prayer.